Welcome, welcome. I am Diana Kander, and I'm so grateful to have you join me in my big, hairy, audacious project of self-improvement. About a year ago, I made a list of 49 different things that I wanted to improve about myself, and each week, I tackle one of the items on the list. At least, I try to. See, I've learned that in addition to my list, there's this hidden list of blind spots that we all have, things that are standing in our way of achieving the things that we actually want. And today's episode is all about the number one thing that prevents us from being the person that we want to be, the number one way we hurt ourselves and the people that we love. I'm talking about shame. As Brene Brown states, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. Now, I tried to get Brene Brown on the show, but I wasn't able to this season. And I wasn't going to let that stop me from having what I believe is the most important conversation that we need to have. So I invited my therapist, Candy Smith, to discuss Brene Brown's book, I Thought It Was Just Me, her first book all about shame. Yep, you're pretty much sitting in on my personal therapy session, including a moment of vulnerability for me where I suggest a parenting technique that I've been trying out with my son, and then Candy politely tells me how I might unintentionally be causing shame. Candy has been a licensed therapist for several decades. She specializes in working with adults and children with trauma. That's how I met her. And in every session, I left with lessons and sayings that I could come back to again and again. And I'm confident that's how you're going to feel after you meet Candy. I can't wait for you to get to know her and get a much better understanding of shame and how it impacts your life every single day. Candy and I are going to talk about how shame sabotages our relationships, how to treat somebody confessing something that they feel shame about, and how to stop shaming others, which it turns out we do a whole lot of every day. And before we get to the interview, I just want to take a second and ask you to subscribe and review the show. I find these reviews so helpful in shaping the show and what it's becoming, and I'd love to know what you think about it. And this content is meant not only to be listened to, but to be discussed. If you enjoy the episode, please share it with somebody that you care about and then unlock some amazing conversations. And if you tag me in the exchange, I can personally thank you. Now, here's my perspective altering conversation with Candy Smith. Candy Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you. This interview is weird for me on two different levels. First of all, you're in my house. My therapist is in my house. This reminds me of when I ran into my gynecologist at a marathon and I <laughs> shouted at her and she was totally freaked out. The other reason it's weird is we've never had a conversation where I didn't cry. So I just feel like seeing you is making me tear up. I uh, know, but I'm very excited about this conversation. Uh, can we start by you helping our listeners understand your training and your experience with shame that makes you such a good guest for this topic? Well, I have been a, a psychotherapist for the past 25 years and was really touched profoundly when I heard Brene Brown's TED Talk on shame and vulnerability and have been recommending that to clients since I first heard it. I love her books. I think she's an amazing person for getting to the heart of shame. And I think shame comes up probably in every one of my sessions from kiddos, you know, who are three to adults who are 93. So it's a really big part of how we walk in the world when we are not walking in our true authentic self. 
I love it. Well, the way that she starts out the book talking about how it came to be is that she started researching how people cultivate genuine connection with one another. And then two months into this research, she figured out that the number one thing that tears relationships apart and fuels isolation is shame. So can you explain why shame is this great big thing that ruins our relationships with one another? Well, if you think about it, shame is this place we go to where we feel that we are bad. And so if I feel that I am bad, I'm going to lose my courage to connect with you. I'm going to get really focused on on myself and what's wrong with me. And I will literally get smaller. I watch people get smaller, constrict, protect their heart. And if you're doing all of those things, there's nothing relational about that. And then we know that when we get overwhelmed, we lose our brain. We go into our flight, fight, and freeze. Uh, That's not our relational brain. And so if I'm in a shame spiral, I'm not going to be able to connect. Wow. Well, what's the difference between shame and guilt? You know, I often ask my clients that to see if they know, <laughs> which is kind it's always interesting what I get back. And because guilt is, um, we can deal with guilt. It's sort of like, oh, I didn't like the way I did that. You see, it's not about me. Shame is, I don't like me. Right. Or I didn't do something right instead of that's guilt instead of, oh, I'm not right. And that is a really big difference. So guilt is totally normal. It's just how do we keep it from getting to shame? Yeah. And, you know, what Brene says is that it's really important that we are aware of what shame is. And I really don't think a lot of people are. I don't think they, I think they know intellectually the difference between guilt and shame, but I don't believe that they have an awareness of, of shame when it's um, affecting them. I think a lot of them name it as guilt and I help them in the sessions bring real critical awareness to like, no, this is shame. And it has a really different effect on how you're walking in the world than guilt would. So there were a couple of different terms that you didn't want me to say during therapy. Like, (laughs) I wish I was a certain way or I should be doing this or I'm trying to do this. Are these all terms rooted in shame? That's correct. And I listen for those words to come up because they're like deal breakers. They're like relationship stoppers and courage. um, They're discouraging. And I'm always about how do we encourage ourselves to keep moving in the world? So if I'm trying to do something, I'm not being right. If I'm shooting myself, right, then I'm shaming myself. Those are really Words are really important, and I think Brene does a great job in helping us understand how those words affect us in our relationships. Okay, so words are one part of it. I think physical signals are another, and you kind of talked about some, but yeah. what what are the way that the body expresses shame that you look for? Well, 
the interesting thing is we all do shame in the same way, right? So if you see somebody when they are in shame, what happens is they literally get smaller. They don't take up the amount of space that is theirs. So they constrict, they get smaller, their chin, their head goes down, their shoulders go in. It's sort of like that Eeyore, you know, and Winnie the Pooh. You know, we've got a lot of shame. They tuck their tail. And tucking our tails, you know, I mean, if you're an animal person, you know what that means. And we as a society tuck our tail a lot. And I don't like that. I like it when we're wagging our tail, (laughs) right? Our shoulders are back. Our heart is open. And the breath is different too, right? I mean, because if I'm in my shame, I'm not even breathing. So what is it that people don't understand about shame, what it is and where it comes from? Like it could be shame, things you feel about yourself from early childhood, or it could be situational, like my project didn't work out at work. So therefore I I feel shame about the quality of person that I am who submitted such a thing. Right. Right. And I think your question is good because um, we as a culture use shame too much, I think. And we use it to parent a lot. And we're using it because we have this belief, if I shame you, you're going to behave better. And what we know from the research is that's not true. If you shame a person, then they um, they feel bad about themselves and then they feel bad about the relationship. And, and actually, Brene gives three ways that people experience shame and then what they do. And what... And I think this is important to this question because I think what happens with people is they either withdraw or they move forward in a placating kind of way or they get aggressive, right? So there are these three ways that aren't relational at all, right? And I was just talking with a little guy yesterday and uh, he's 14 and I we were talking about shame And I told him those three ways. And he said, oh, yeah, he goes, when my dad gets mad at me and he's shaming him, basically, he's like, you're not behaving correctly, which is a shaming statement. And he said, what I do is I say, I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, dad. I'm sorry, dad. Well, he's not even in the room, right? And what he really wants to say is, ouch, that hurts. Because his dad is really trying to parent him well. But what's happening is he's he's shaming him. And so this little guy is taking on I'm bad. And the thing that happens if a child believes they're bad, they start acting bad. Right? That's why he's in my office. <laughs> because he's acting bad. But, um, but he's this sweet little soul. Right? And um, so as we're walking in the world... If you have an awareness that that was shaming to me, then we can say, ouch, that hurts. Instead of doing one of those things, like I'm going to go be by myself. There must be something wrong about me and bad about me. Instead, you can have the courage to say, do I want to do, do I want to take that on as about me? Or can I say, ouch, that hurts. I know you're trying to help me be a better person. But that it won't work that way because it just hurts me and it hurts our relationship because the dad doesn't want to do that either. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes we shame other people or or even make it worse. So there's this this part 
in the book where she talks about how to react to somebody who is sharing their shame yes. with us. Yes. And she has this long list of don't do's. And I was like, oh no, this, <laughs> this is a terrible list. Okay, so here's what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to feel shame for the person and confirm how horrible the thing that they're confirming to you was. You're not supposed to feel sorry for them and be like, oh, you poor thing. You're not supposed to judge them and say, you know what, that's gross. <laughs> what you're ashamed of, I can't be a part of this. You're not supposed to be so uncomfortable with what was shared that you scold them and say, like, what were you even thinking? What's wrong with you? You're not supposed to try to fix it or pretend like it's not a big deal. You're not supposed to try to one up them and be like, oh, you think that's bad? Listen to this story. <laughs> And that's, that's a long list of, of big minds of what you're not supposed to do. So what do we do? Like, how do we take in when somebody's trying to share with us something that's going on with them? Well, it's so interesting. I mean, that question, because when somebody is sharing their shame with you, that is so vulnerable. It's like such a gift they're giving to you, right? Because even in the therapy room, like years later, people will tell me things and I'll think, oh, okay, that would have been great to know a year I, ago. I can't tell you how many people I've met that are like, I think I'm going to tell my therapist the truth. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Totally. But that's shame. Yeah. Right. And I always think our ego can't take it, which is fine. You know, like go slow, build your well of trust until you have courage enough to be vulnerable. So if somebody is being vulnerable with you and sharing their shame, they're going to be watching you. And this is what I think is fascinating because I'm a, a brain body therapist. I pay more attention to what somebody's body is doing. But what I know too, is that they're watching. If you're telling me a shame story, and I get a look of shock or a look of disgust on my face, uh -huh. what it's going to do is in a nanosecond, it's going to shift the story you're telling me. So I think that's important to know too, right? It takes a lot of courage to hear some things if we're not ready for them or, right? So being with somebody when they're being vulnerable like that is number one, it's an honor. And number two, I always think, you know, like, how do I lead? How do I stay right here with the person? And how do I lead with curiosity? And how do I lead with compassion? Right. And then it's really like, okay, uh, you know, like I'm interested, tell me more about that. If you get curious, like, because I don't know a lot of of things that people might tell me and I'll say, okay, well, yes. But I, the main thing is staying in connection with them and, yes. and to be more curious about it. So you mentioned compassion. Yes. Brene says that compassion is not a relationship between a healer and the wounded, but it's a relationship between equals. And only when we know our own darkness, can we be present for the darkness of others? Oh, I love that. And I love darkness. This is the thing. I think here in um, the Western world, we're afraid of darkness. I'm not afraid of darkness. I love it because I think in each of us, there's darkness and light. And um, if we're not willing to look at our darkness, what happens is it has to come out screaming and yelling and hollering. But if we're willing to say, oh, hello, darkness, my old friend, 
And I even go as far as embrace it, which that always makes me, ah, but at least they'll maybe not be so afraid of it if I'm asking them to embrace it. Because there's truth in our darkness. There's wisdom in there. If I can't listen to my darkness, I'm going to try to hide it. And that's what Brene says is that shame grows in secrets. And if I'm keeping the secret even from me because I don't want to know it, then it's going to grow. But as I name my darkness, as I name my shame, what happens is it takes the power out of it and it connects us with other people because they'll have something in them too that they can relate to because that's where scary movies come from. And that's where, you know, like we all have these dreams and images and desires to, it's in our vernacular, you know, I just want to wring his neck. I mean, we all have darkness. So being able to be with your own darkness And knowing that it's there and embracing it helps you when other people tell you your darkness, be able to get curious with them and like, thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had some of that. But most of us are not comfortable with darkness. It's so true. And we try, especially if you don't know that that's what it is. Like, if you don't know about shame, you're like, I don't feel right. And I want to make this feeling go away. True. And one of my favorite lines from the book is, you know, we try to suppress our darkness through all kinds of avoidance techniques, through all kinds of alcoholism, uh, drug use, eating disorders, just things to suppress it. And Brene says that it is impossible to, you know, put down the darkness without also suppressing the light. Oh, that's so true. I always think of it in like a body way, you know, like if we're not allowed to roar and um, fight and we're also, it's the same exact pathway that delight and joy and like, yes, comes from. It's the same one that a roar comes from. So if you stop down, if you stop down that pathway to your rage. People always tell me, well, I'm not an angry person or I, I, I don't get mad. I'm like, "Uh Oh, what? We got to get that back online. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Now I always tell them that there's rules. We don't hurt other people. You know, we are animals, but we have a bigger brain. So we don't have to hurt other people with our rage or anger or darkness. Um, But if we hold it a secret, we end up hurting people, you know? And that's why a lot of like even road rage, I think road rage is is where people are doing their darkness in the privacy of their car. They can't do it anywhere else. And um, it's a big problem, right? And it's like, take it out of the darkness. Let's put it into the light. Jason, fun fact about today, I received an email from a potential advertiser and I had to write them back and say, I'm sorry, we can't read for your product because I don't use the product and we only talk about advertisers that we use and love and want other people to use. They probably were like, I didn't think that was real. That's not a thing. Yeah, they're probably like, that's a gimmick. Uh, In fact, we're doing an NBKC ad right now and I believe they were the first company you reached out to. I love NBKC and we usually do promo codes with many advertisers for, you know, Diana listeners, but with NBKC, it's like the whole bank is a promo code because banking with them is free. No account fees, no overdraft fees, no ATM fees in their huge money pass network. It's an incredible bank. 
Another fun fact, they're actually the bank behind many of the popular savings apps, the bill-cutting apps and other money-related apps that are geared toward helping people be good at money. They have an entire fintech accelerator inside the bank that brings in startups and helps them get started using NBKC as the banking partner in the foundation. They're an equal housing lender and a member FDIC. I mean, that's one of my favorite things. Uh, (laughs) And then on top of that, uh, and this is actually really cool. They're like one of Glassdoor's best places to work in the country. And, you know, when you go into a bank and sometimes people are a little irritated with you, I've always imagined maybe it's just not a fun place to work. But I think it's cool when a bank is considered one of the best places to work because with NBKC, you can see that translated in the customer interactions. Employees love them. Customers like you and me love them. You're going to love them too. And if you want to see what a different kind of bank looks like that's not going to shame you, <laughs> you just go to nbkc.com slash Diana and you sign up to open a new account and you get an entire box of stuff. We spent this week emailing with the marketing team about what books from this season we're going to send to you, what professional AF swag you're going to get. I- I'm excited for you to open up these boxes just for opening up an account with NBKC. Jason, every morning when we wake up, what's the first thing we do? We check our whoop and we compare recovery scores. And then we talk about how awesome the whoop is and how much we love it. We kind of do that all day, all the time. It's like, sometimes I'm embarrassed almost because I feel like we we sound ridiculous. We literally high five over this thing. And we (laughs) can't believe that they agreed to let us talk about it on the show because we love this thing so much. Because I walk around talking about this thing to people all the time as if I'm doing a podcast ad. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that pairs to an app and provides you daily personalized analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. You know when your body is recovered and when it needs rest by getting to know your nervous system through your heart rate variability and the quality of your sleep. I used to have one of those step counters and I felt like it was shaming me the entire time. Like every day I would look at it and it would be like, nope. You didn't reach the steps you were supposed to. Like no matter what you did that day, like you may have lifted weights or played basketball, but it's like, no, 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 you have more to do. And this measures your heart rate. So it tracks any kind of exertion that you have through the day and it tells you what you should be doing. So today I really wanted to work out and get one in before my trip. And I looked at my whoop and I said, no, you really need a nap. So what it does is encourages you to rest when you need rest, and that's what your body needs. But it tells you when you should work out because you can. The other day, uh, I was charging it. So there's a thing in the copy here about, you know, five-day battery life, and it can be charged while wearing it. But, like, that doesn't do it justice. I took the little thing, and I clipped it onto the Whoop, which only made it, like, the size of a regular watch for a little bit. And I remember actually saying to you, I can't believe how easy this is. And then I felt ridiculous because I just sounded like somebody out of a commercial. You just go to Whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code Diana at checkout to save 15% and optimize the way that you live your life. It's not just for training. It's really on you as a person. You go to Whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code Diana at checkout Feel free to message me and Jason any questions about this thing because we want to talk about it all the time, every day. Well, so people don't come to see you for shame. No, they They, don't. (laughs) They they come because they have a thing that's bothering them. This is like me. And I was like, I need some tools. I need some tactics. I need to be on my way, like back functioning. So how do you 
you, you know, you, you mentioned what it looks like when you see it. How do you begin the conversation of, well, this is what I really think is going on or helping people discover their own shame? How do, how do we do that? Well, that's a good question because they are coming in, as you say, you know, with anxiety or depression and wanting tools. And I think what happens is, at least in my office, because I'm, I want people to bring who they are in the moment and I listen for it and then I'll slow them down because this is one thing we go too fast. And if we go too fast, we're not listening to ourselves. We're not feeling what we're feeling. And so really going slow and being curious and just stopping someone and say, oh, I just heard you say that you were bad. Did you hear yourself say you're bad? And they'll be like, no, no. Well, I just meant this. Right. And I'll say, "Okay, yeah, yeah, that's what you meant. But let's slow down and notice what happened in your body as you said these words. And I'll say whatever words they're saying back to me if they're shaming words. Right. Like, I'm not good enough or I'm not enough or yeah, I can't believe I did that. I'm so stupid. Right. And I'll say, OK, OK, let's slow down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can feel there's a lot of stuff happening with that statement. You know, I hear I can't believe I did that, which is more guilt. But I also hear I'm so stupid. We can handle that. I can't believe I did that. That one we got. But let's take a minute and actually feel what happens inside of you when you just said, I'm so stupid. Because that actually is so mean. And people are like mean to themselves, which I'm not a big fan of. You know, I'm like always encouraging kindness. And I think it has to start with you. I mean, we shame ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> the shame that we feel. Yes, exactly. So how do you become a good friend? You know, you hear somebody say these things yes. about themselves. Yeah. You can't be like, hey, that's shame. You need to read one of these Brene Brown books. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, so how do we become a good friend and, and help get into the light, some of that darkness? Well, I think, I think the key here and one of the things that I've learned is so important is going slow. And when you go slow, I think you can actually start to recognize shame. And Brene, you know, she gives like a four-step way of dealing with shame. And the first one is, you know, bringing awareness to what shame is and to when it's happening and to really notice it, right? And once you start to sort of understand the difference between, because I, I was working with a teen recently and she said, I mainly have guilt. I don't have shame. <laughs> and I um, said to her, I said, well, let's do that. Brene has that thing like, how, how do I want to be perceived? And then how do I not want, how do I not want to be perceived? And she asked people to write it down because when we write things down, it's another way to slow it down. And when you slow it down, you actually see how you want to be perceived. And then the neat one is how I do not want to be perceived. And you look at that list. It's hard to write for a lot of people, too, because we don't even want to go there. Right? But if you actually see it and you slow down and you look at it, you can see the way that you shame yourself. So you'll get some ideas of how you're walking in the world of shame. 
right? So I want to be seen as, let's say I want to be perceived as smart, right? Then if I want to be perceived as smart, it's sort of interesting, right? Because it's this concept out here. And if I have shame around it, I'm going to be real careful about how smart I am. I'm not going to make any mistakes. And if I do, I'm going to try to hide them, right? So with my clients, I always say, you know, your job is to make three mistakes a day and then tell everybody about them, right? Because we're working through our shame and they, I want to be perceived as smart because smart is something out here. I don't even know what that means. I might miss you if you're walking around trying to be smart and it's not relational because you won't say to me, I have no idea what you're talking about, Candy. Because if you have this idea, you want to be smart, it's going to take a lot of courage to say, like, what did you just say? (laughs) Do you see? Yeah, well, so in the book, she says that shame loves perfectionists. Oh, oh, jeepers. (laughs) I can have my whole practice full of perfectionists. Yeah, and why why is that? Like because we're we're so afraid of certain things, so we've we're now making ourselves crazy trying to stay as far away from that as possible. Yeah, it's totally all fear based. Because I, I as a I don't know recovering perfectionist, <laughs> I uh, um, I never thought like oh I have deep rooted shame that I'm trying to run away from. I thought I just I just don't like mistakes. I just like things to be done well. I just have attention to detail. And you see how you you see how your logical brain is going to take you down that road. It's taking you down that road so you don't feel that vulnerability of what would happen if you got something wrong. And think about it. We do this because I work with kids too, and we do this to children, right? They come home with their report cards, right? Which they're a lot of schools aren't even doing report cards anymore. They're but. They'll come home and they'll have an A, 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 C, A, C. And what does the parent go to? The C or the C's, right? And I always say, don't do that. You know, let's look at the whole person. Oh, you got an A, 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 C, A, C. Wow, you did that. You're proud of you. So it's taking it into this realm of the whole person. And there's a lot of curiosity there too. Like I'm curious about their A's as much as their C's. Right. And then usually you got the kid saying, oh, I, I don't like the C, but, you know, like I struggle in this. And then you're I mean, that's a whole person. But what we do is we get really focused on outcome. And if you get focused on outcome, you're going to try to do it right or well or good or something out here instead of the journey or the process. And what does that do to people? You know, when you're. It just feels like perfectionism is very limiting to an individual. Well, this is what I say, because I really am, I really like to have fun and I like to encourage fun. And I think adults in our culture are not having as much fun as they would like to. In fact, I just read an article about they're having recess now for adults. (laughs) And um, people are like going in droves because I think we're all feeling the need for recess and fun. But being a perfectionist takes all the fun out of whatever you're trying to be perfectionist about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it will lead to anxiety. It leads to depression. And even these days, you know, I mean, there's an epidemic of suicide. And a lot of that is people really wanting to be perfect. And there is no perfection. And 
it's no fun. Yeah. Well, I work with a lot of companies and the, they frequently have a mantra that failure is not an option. Oh, dear. And I try to share with them. It just means that everybody's hiding <laughs> all the failures. <laughs> totally. It's not like it's not happening. It's just that you're not trying anything new. You're not growing as an organization. If failure is not an option, you're you're limiting yourself because that that's the, the opposite of growth. And it's fear. Yeah. And we know what happens to someone's brain when they're living in fear. When we get afraid, in a nanosecond, most of our brain shuts down and we end up in our reptile brain, which is flight, fight, or freeze. So that's the pretending. I can freeze, pretend all day, right? I can fight. Oh, you know, like, I hate this or I can run. I've got to get away from this job. That's what people will be doing if they're going for that no failure. I'm a big fan of failure. Like, it takes a lot of courage to fail. Yeah. Every time I fail or made a mistake, I would go home and tell my kids. I'd be like, oh, big failure today. Oh, this is what I did. Those were gifts I was giving to them. So they would have the courage to make mistakes, to get things wrong. So shame loves perfectionists. Does it also love people who are constantly hustling or are, they, are those people just just trying to suppress it by being so busy? Like, does it is busyness a symptom of shame? It's another one of those ways to cope, right? When you were talking about alcohol or or gambling or shopping. But another way is just stay busy. If I stay busy, and remember that, that's that going fast. I'm a big fan of going slow. When you go slow, you can integrate, you can heal, you can know, you can, um, you can be curious. Going fast, none of that is happening. If I just keep busy, if I and our culture loves that, right? That's the Protestant work ethic. You know, if you're a worker, if you're busy, if you're doing things, oh man, good. It's not good. You used to observe me, so you're the best like body language reader I've ever been in, in the <laughs> space with. And so you would observe me walking into the room and not being fully present, just like being there, ready to do my thing, not like enjoying the space. Yes. And not only not enjoying the space, if you're coming in really fast and you've got your plan and this is what you want to accomplish, what's happening is I know that you don't have your whole brain in the game. And so what I would do with you is I would say, hey, let's take a minute and find your seat, find your feet. Let's look around the room. <laughs> to which I was like, boring. Totally. <laughs> You're, like, do this stuff. <laughs> You're like, time is money. Time is money. <laughs> but now I feel myself. Nobody's ever said that to me about how I enter rooms. But now I feel myself being more fully present in every space that I walk into. And if you think about it, you have to land and locate before you can be embodied, engaged, embrace whatever it is you're up to. And and does that mean like you're not, if you're moving so quickly and you're not really there, then you're not really ready to talk about the this deep stuff that we're talking about? Exactly. You're not ready to know. And we have so many ways to not know our truth, if it's painful. Somehow in this culture, we're so afraid of pain. 
And the thing that I say is, you know, I mean, like pain is where your growth is. Pain is where you're going to find your wisdom. Pain is painful, yes. And it's not forever. It it has its moment. It wants to be listened to. It wants to be heard. It wants to be moved through, right? Then you get to the other side and you can breathe. And it's more comfortable. But it's not better than the pain part of your story. It's just a different part. So you're at a happy hour. And again, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to help your friends, you know, get yep. into this place or yep. loved ones. You're at a happy hour. You can see, you know, you're a professional. You're like, oh, there's some shame. <laughs> there's oh, some trauma. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so how do you gently, like, do you just ignore it? Do you say you should go see somebody? Like, how, right. how do you right. become a good friend to somebody and right. say, right. I'm, I'm seeing evidence of this self-sabotaging behavior. And yeah. I... I want to help you get through it. Yeah. You know, Brene talks about that in her books, too. She says, you know, it's really hard. Like, what do you do when you see it? When Because once you start recognizing in you, you're going to start seeing it out there Everywhere. in the world. <laughs> yes. I just came home. I was on an airplane at airport and there was somebody who was trying to buy a book and it was $28. And she was like, oh, gosh, I didn't know it was that much. And the clerk who was ringing her up shamed her. She was like. It says right here on the back of the book. People do this to me. It's just like, can you not read? And so this woman was there, right, being shamed right in front of me. And I was tired. And and, um, and what Brene says is, you know, you, you don't shame the person for shaming somebody. And you don't be a know-it-all and say, that's shame, you know? <laughs> um, shame police. <laughs> I'm the shame police. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I did was, is, is I just slowed down. I felt her pain, you know? And I just said, ouch. I looked at her. I connected with her as another human being. And I said, ouch. And she sort of looked at me. And she had the shame posture, you know, because she was being shamed. And, um, and I was like, that hurts, you know? And then I connected with her. Like, I do that all the time. I'm not paying $28, you know? Um, so just some sort of connection. And when it's a friend or a colleague, right? I think it's the same kind of thing. If when they're shaming themselves or you're hearing shame in the conversation, if you just slow down enough, connect with them in the eyes and go, ouch, you know, like, like, I don't like it when you're mean to you, you know, something like that. It slows them down and they'll go really quick into, oh, no, no, this is me. And, you know, and and you can watch them go that way, too. Right. But you stopped them for a minute. Mm -hmm. You've made them feel for a nanosecond. Yeah. Jason, you've been looking for a public forum to discuss how much you love your purple mattress for some time now. It is total game changer for me, especially when it comes to back pain. Like, you know, I was really struggling with back pain. I had actually a lot of sleep issues and I did a lot of therapy and that helped a lot. But then there was like another part of it and it was back pain that was keeping me from sleeping a lot. And then you did a bunch of research and you came up with this and this mattress has made a huge difference for me. Like I have a lot less back pain. I don't wake up as stiff. It's awesome. They say you're also supposed to wake up less hot and sweaty than normal. Since I'm freezing all the time, I wouldn't know. So I'd have to defer to you. I wake up less hot and sweaty, which is amazing because you keep it at 73 degrees. I can't believe you're going to use this public forum. 
well, to debate the temperature in our house. I just think when people hear that you keep it at 73 degrees, they're going to be like, wow, that's really warm as a compromised temperature. We're here to talk about the purple mattress <laughs> and how if you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try a purple mattress. The founders of purple are two brothers who have been developing cushioning technology for 30 years on things like medical beds and wheelchairs. The purple mattress is probably going to feel a little bit different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses this brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. You get a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. You get a 10-year warranty, free shipping and returns, and free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love Purple. And right now, our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. That's some strong piece right there. <laughs> That's in addition to the great free gifts that they're offering site-wide. This is what you need to do. You're going to text Diana to 84888. The only way to get the free pillow is to text Diana to 84888. I've coveted these pillows. They were at the store when we bought our mattress. I want to know how many of these mattresses we need to sell in order to... I think we could just text Diana <laughs> to 84888. I think that's what you need to do if you want one. I'm going to do it in just a minute. You know, just listening to you talk, I feel like if you first learn to identify when people are shaming you. Yes. Which happens all the time. All the time. <laughs> and, yes. And when you recognize it happen, first, like, understand what shame is. Yes. Then when you see it happening to you. Yes. You just say, shame. Shame. You know, in, your, in your head. <laughs> just like, oh, that's shame. That's shame. And then you have a choice. Do I wear it? Right. Yeah. But it's like a first uh, first stop for yes. this comment. I love is, it. This is shame. And is it is it rooted in anything I should think about or listen to? It's not helpful. I will take the guilt part of right. it. I'm I personally today I'm not wearing that shame coat. Yeah. And as you get better and better at recognizing when people are doing it to you, you're gonna be much better about recognizing when you do it to other people. It just starts, you'll be like, oh, oh. Because I don't think any of us want to do that. I think we've learned and we live in a culture of it. But I think that is exactly right, Diana. Okay, well, the most difficult topic to talk about, shame. Uh, we've talked about how to see it in yourself and, and how to help friends with it. But I, I want to dive deeper into how you cause it in others, specifically kids and the people that you love. Because... I don't think you ever shame people. You always think you have a good reason for it, and you think that you're trying to help. It's going to be helpful, yeah. Because you, you shame yourself, so it must be <laughs> right helpful. So how do we create shame in our kids? Because I, I feel like we do it unknowingly almost all the time, and being a parent is probably one of the most vulnerable, <laughs> guilt-inducing. Like, I just feel like you just feel guilty all the time. Yes. Like you're not doing enough. You're not as good as the other parents. So how do we not give shame to our kids who are primary, you know, customers of, of therapy with you? So what you just said is important, Diana, because first of all, you are modeling to your children how to walk in the world. So if we are walking around in shame, you know, like let's say a mom has an eating disorder or 
And she's walking around like, I'm so fat. Oh, I don't like the way anything looks on me. Oh, my body is right. She's going there. That child is like soaking that up. Right. So right there, we're giving that child this gift of shame because the mom's walking around in a shame coat. She's wearing it proudly. Right. So we have to be really conscious of we are modeling to them because kids are soaker uppers more of what they see, what they hear, what they smell, what they taste, the felt sense in their body your tone. They, they're watching you. They're not listening to your words. You can't say to them like, um, shame is not a good thing. Don't have it. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. (laughs) Right. I'll give you an example. I'm working with this little guy who, um, I started to see him. He got kicked out of preschool and, um, he came in to see me. First thing he told me really loud and clear was how bad he was. He just came in. I'm bad. And I was like, Oh, you're really bad. I didn't even know that. Well, come on in. Bad kids are welcome here, you know? And we just started playing. And But what most people do when a child says they're bad is they go, no, you're not, sweetie. You are not bad. You're good. And this is why. You're a good reader. You're a good brother, right? Now, all these things are, once again, they're things that they are. And this child is not being listened to. Right. But what I do is I wait for him to do something that's good. And I say, oh, wow, you did that. Wow. That's something a good kid does. Oh, wow. So I'm looking for their strengths. I'm looking for when he's walking around in in how beautiful he is and how, you know, how amazing he is. We get really black and white with kids. They're good or they're bad. And under 10, they're really black and white. They're going to believe those kind of things, right? So it's really about the process of walking with them. This little guy's in first grade now. And he just wrote a note to the teacher. Like, I'm um, the most horrible person. My parent must be disappointed in me. He's got a really big shame going on. But what the teacher wrote back is, you are not. You are good. And you can't say that so quickly to them. You got to be present. You gotta, that's Brene and her little thing. You know, you can't say, you can't come right back and tell the person why they're not. You have to have empathy first and you have to have compassion, how it feels to walk in that little guy's shoes, right? Like, oh, today is a, I feel really bad day, right? When you have new experiences, because he's it's a new school year, right? So he's transitions are hard for him and he goes back to his old ways of being and everybody goes ah instead of like whoa let's pay attention to where you are right in this moment and I think parenting is a skill and it needs some real we need to learn how to be really good parents because talking to our kids is really different than talking to our adult friends and we as a culture we don't get a lot of training in being parenting. We want to be the best parents, but we don't put a lot of our energy or effort or time in really learning what that means. I feel like a quick tool that a lot of parents talk about yes. is uh, they've read the article and they say, don't say the kid is bad. Say that the thing they did was really bad. Yes. And they're good. Like Yes, <laughs> yes. And I, I don't know. It just feels like that's not... like It's not. Because I feel like you're still conveying to the kid... 
your bet. You're just using a little bit of a different set of words. Do you and, know? And, and I love that you're saying it is a little different words. And remember, words are not their language until they get like 9 to 12 when they understand abstract concepts. What they're seeing as you're saying it is you're, is you're getting really big. You're pointing a finger at them. Your eyes are darting. Your tone is you're bad. That's what they're seeing. So those kind of articles... Yeah, I don't know. And even if you're not saying that stuff, so there was a period for like six months where I would get upset and I would say, you know what? I'm not even going to say anything bad. I'm just going to walk away so that I don't become angry. And I thought I was being helpful. Yeah. And my kids start coming home from school saying, I'm bad. I don't like myself. Yes, that's what they say. Yes. And I'm like, what's wrong with the teacher? (laughs) What's going on at school? Yes. And what I didn't understand was, I was withdrawing affection whenever I was upset. Yes. And that was making my son feel shame and yes. the way that he was vocal. It's like, I would never have connected those two things. It's amazing, isn't it? If uh, my husband hadn't said, like, that's not a great way to parent those situations. There you go. And so I did a 180. Yeah. So whenever something bad happens, I, I yeah. start with love. Yes. I love you. Let yes. me tell you about all the things I've done that are much worse yes. than this. Yes. I just love you. Yes. And like, let's figure out how to, you tell yeah. me how to do it better next time. Now, this is what I tell parents. You get overwhelmed, right? Because they're doing something that overwhelms you. You get angry, right? So it's like a roller coaster. <gasps> right? So the first thing I ask parents to do is exactly what you just said there. Remember how much you love them and how lovable they are. And if you do that, what can happen is now I can catch my breath. Now I can settle my nervous system. I can get off the roller coaster. I was, they were on a roller coaster. I went on one with them. It's still overwhelming. I'm going to get on a wave here, but I'm going to remember how much I love them. I'm going to catch my breath and I'm going to settle my nervous system knowing they're watching my nervous system. If I can come from this place where now I'm still firm, I can say, I don't like that. And I love you. And what are we going to do now? Right? Like we get curious, but we slow down. We settle our nervous system first, and then we come with love because then I'm going to help his roller coaster become a wave, him get his brain back on line. So he can be more relational, more reasonable because he's a roller coaster. He's in flight, fight, or freeze. So if I come up here with him and get bigger than him or her, I don't care how I'm thinking about my words. I'm up on a roller coaster with him. I got to settle me first. All right. Well, let me try out something else that we've been trying with no research back to yes, this whatsoever. Yes. Yeah. So whenever our son gets upset or maybe he's tired and he doesn't know it, yes. we start naming uh, the feelings that we think that he's expressing. So we say, well, that's not you. That's the uh, sleepy zombie or the hungry zombie. Yes. And you are amazing and I love mm-hmm. you, but mm-hmm. this is not you. The yes. person doing the talking right yes. now yes. is the want zombie. Yes. And we need to deal with that zombie so yes. we can get back to yeah. you at the core who's awesome. Yes. Now, listen to him. Listen to this. You at the core who's awesome. That's a shaming statement. That says zombie, not awesome. You at the core, awesome. Mm-hmm. And you at the core... Like me at my core, Diana, I am not awesome. I am awesome sometimes, yeah. but I'm also the the zombie. And I'm also, I'm all of these things at my core. And I'm one person, 
right? So when you say that's not you, now what we're doing is we're helping him split. We don't want to do that. We want to help him stay connected. We can say, oh, you know, oh, I get it. We've got the zomb- the tired zombie or the hungry zombie. Oh, yes. I love your playfulness because that's... I have zombies. We talk about my zombies all the time. Exactly. And it helps settle your nervous system. And that's a part of all of us. We right. all do. That's the darkness. That's the, the yin and the yang. You know, I want to be able to have both. And what we as parents are doing is trying to connect those parts that say, oh, we're over here now. I love my zombie and my zombie roars and screams and there's no kicking and oh, those words hurt. But man, let's zombie out. Ah, you see, I'm going to be right there with them. I'm going to try to get as big as they are. I'm going to be very firm about things that I'm not OK with, like oh, no hitting, no punching. Oh, that word hurts. In our house, we're kind. But man, zombies have trouble being kind. They just want to feel out their things and kick and hit. And then you, you know, you play with them. You show, give them something to kick that won't hurt. Yeah, this thing. I'm a big fan of all of that. You know, as you're talking, it really feels like the message is, we don't do enough research on how to parent our kids, but we also don't do enough research on how to parent ourselves. <gasps> you know what I do, Diana? I ask a lot of people to read um, a couple of parenting books that I like. And I ask them to read it so they can learn how to parent themselves, you know, and like in the 80s, I think there was a really big self-parenting movement. And there's a book I love called Self-Parenting by John Pollard, because it helps adults understand how to lovingly parent themselves. But even reading a parenting book for your child, I mean, it's the best thing to help you learn how to parent you, because it's always the little child in us that goes, oh, I don't know how to do this. Oh, I'm bad. Oh, those are, you know, that's what shows up in all of us. And if we know how to love that part of us, then we can, oh, we can breathe again. We can settle in our chair. We can remember that we love, that our child is not a threat because our brain goes into any kind of overwhelm registers as threat. So we get threatened. Oh, no, I'm not a good enough parent. Oh, no, my child might do this. Those are all threats. And so we go into our uh, flight, fight, or freeze. If we can catch that and remember to love ourselves and that we love our child. Oh, wait. Yes, this is probably going to be one of my mistakes today. You're doing this all (laughs) wrong, right? And I always say with kids, they give you, you know, like a couple weeks. They don't change too much. So when you get it really wrong this first time, you got like 10 more tries, right? Yeah, there's a part in the book where she says there's no parenting book or anything you can read that will be better than deciding how you're going to treat yourself. (gasps) Oh, I love that. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Because what are you doing? Then you're modeling. I'm valuable. I'm important. I matter. I'm this whole person who has this whole big range of emotions. And, you know, the research now is saying our emotions are our North Star. It's really different than it was a couple decades ago where they said, don't pay attention to those. Let's just all be great or good or nice or something. I don't know, but it's not real. Our emotions are, they're amazing, all of them. And if we don't get caught up in that they're bad or they're good, 
We're cooking with gas. I love it. Candy Smith, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is not an exaggeration. I feel like I'm personally going to listen to the show more than any other show over and over again. Like when I have free time over the next many, many months, this is the show I'm going to be listening to. Jesse? Oh my gosh. I want to share this with everyone. I want to listen to it monthly. I mean, I I was there in the conversation when we were reviewing it for, for getting it ready. I, it was like listening to it for the first time. I learned so many things that I had done the day before <laughs> <laughs> that I immediately felt shame for. Same. Jesse, what were your big takeaways? Oh my gosh. Um, one of my biggest takeaways was this sense of like um, notifying yourself of when you're having the shame, just like calling it out. It's like so freeing. I feel like I'm taking a WD-40 wash and just like <laughs> getting it all off me. Like release that. I don't want to hold that shame. Yes. And when you can call it out, you can prevent yourself from doing it to other people. Like, I, I know what I'm doing here. This is shame. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's amazing how we can do that to other people. We shame them for shaming themselves. It's such a vicious cycle. And yeah. this is how we're going to put an end to it. Being aware of it? Yes. Calling it out? Yes. Not further reinforcing the pattern of the habit? I went into this conversation not knowing what shame was. Now I've come out the other end just trying to go a whole day without shaming somebody. <laughs> and I, I think that's such an important reflection for everybody to, to make in their own lives. Like, how does shame play a part in your life? And what would you like to do a little bit differently as a result of, of this talk? Anything else that you took away, Jesse? I'm just going to continue to see it and hopefully not let it control my life. Jesse and I are having these conversations as a way to reflect on the show because that's the real way that you create changes. It's not by listening. It's by thinking to yourself, well, how do I want to do something different? And hopefully you'll continue this conversation with us on the Facebook group, Professional AF Podcast Insiders, where we're going to keep talking about the episode, any follow-up questions that you had, any other Brene Brown uh, books that you'd want us to cover. I'm thinking about doing a whole series with Candy covering different Brene Brown books. So let me know what you think of that idea. And while you're at sharing your opinion, can you share it on uh, whatever service you use to listen to podcasts? Can you review the show and subscribe to it? Make sure that you don't miss another amazing episode. And once you're there and you're reviewing and sharing the show with somebody else to have these kinds of conversations, I just want you to remember curiosity is your superpower. It is the secret to becoming bigger, better human beings. Jesse and I over here wishing you an amazing week. 